people were there out to enjoy themselves. They respected each other socially and, you know, didn't, didn't crowd each other. And it was eerily business as usual. That's the voice of restaurateur Alex Smith, whose first establishment was an ice cream shop in Baltimore and now owns Atlas Restaurant Group with 12 establishments in Maryland, Washington, D.C., Florida, and Texas. His goal for 2020 was to do $100 million in sales. The pandemic has certainly taken a bite out of that. We are also joined by Jessica Curtis, a senior vice president and the leader of CBRE's U.S. restaurant practice, specializing in emerging brands. As states are starting to open up, we're here to talk about dining out, the restaurant business, on this episode of The Weekly Take. This is Spencer Levy for The Weekly Take, and I'm delighted to be talking about restaurants this week. Alex and Jessica, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Well, it's funny to be talking about restaurants when I haven't been to one in the last two months, and I'm a big restaurant person, and you guys are professionals in this space. How have you been doing in terms of home-cooked meals in the last uh, six, eight weeks, knowing that uh, you're itching to get out there not just personally but professionally? Alex? A lot of home-cooked meals, a lot of chicken parm, taco night, taco Tuesdays. We just went out actually for the first weekend in Texas, which was open last weekend, and it was refreshing to be back in a dining room, that's for sure. I agree with you on that. Jessica, how you been doing with the home-cooked meals and other things in the home front? I have been crushing it on the home-cooked meals front. Um, I actually love to cook, so this is a welcome change in my life. I'm a little bit healthier these days because prior to this, I was on the road almost every week and eating at least 15 meals out in restaurants every week. So I definitely miss my greatest hits from my favorite restaurants and can't wait to get out, but I'm ready. I think we're all ready. Well, I, I think that's the, that's for sure. And I know we're going to talk about secular shifts in the restaurant business uh, in a moment. But from my perspective, because we've been home so much, eating so much home-cooked food, I think this long-term bodes extremely well for the restaurant business. What do you think, Alex? I mean, I, I could tell you that there's tremendous demand out there. Uh, we opened up in Texas uh, Friday, last Friday, and between two properties we have there, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we served over 1,000 people. We turned a few hundred people away. Um, so I think the demand is there, and I think people are resilient. Americans are resilient, and I think that the restaurants will bounce back faster than everybody thinks. Well, Alex, let's go to the bottom line question. What capacity are you operating at in terms of the number of people that can go in there percentage-wise, and can you make money at those numbers? Sure. In Texas, we're operating at a 25% occupancy number. Uh, so we have two stores there and we can seat at any one time in the restaurant between 60 and 70. One store is 70, one store is 60. Um, and can we make money at that? We can, we can sustain ourselves at that. Um, and we can't necessarily make a profit, but we can sustain ourselves at that. Um, and we're doing about 50% of our revenue that we were doing at that 25% occupancy number. So people are up spending, if that's the right way to say it, uh, from the amount they're buying in terms of food and drink and then and tipping as well. Is that correct? They're spending a lot of money. Tips have been incredible. I would say they're tipping between 25 and 30% to support the hospitality industry. Uh, the other thing I'll tell you is they're coming at staggered times. People are dining later. People are dining earlier. So we're doing a tremendous amount of traffic. Let's stay with that Texas theme for just a moment, Alex, and tell me how that worked with your restaurants opening up. What do you do with social distancing? Sure. So uh, our max occupancy per location was between 65 and 70, uh, depending on the outdoor space. 
Um, so we were allowed to set basically 140 to 150 at one time. And so we did a few turns through the weekend, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, we sat over a thousand people. All of our servers were in masks and gloves, uh, hand sanitizer stations, tables six feet apart. Um, and you know, it's interesting other than our staff, which, uh, you know, our safety and sanitation measures were above and beyond what we'd ever seen before. Uh, guests were basically, it was business as usual. I mean, none of the guests we had were wearing face masks or gloves. Uh, people were there out to enjoy themselves. They respected each other socially and, you know, didn't, didn't crowd each other. And it was eerily business as usual, uh, which was great. What about the bar, the areas that were more dense in the uh, restaurant? How'd you handle that? Sure. So in the bar area, what we did was, um, as guests would sit down, we would put up uh, two picture frames uh, on bar stools in between guests, just saying reserved for social distancing. That way we could space our guests out a little bit. Um, and when people went to come to the bar to try and get a drink, we would just tell them, hey, you know, we can we could seat you in five or 10 minutes if you want to have a drink outside um, and just kind of push push patrons through that way. And no other extraordinary measures like temperature checks or anything like that. We didn't temperature check customers, but we did temperature check every single employee when they clocked in kept a log of that uh, just to make sure that if we saw any high temps, we can send people home to self-quarantine and until we, we feel they're ready to come back to work. Um, but that was the main thing is just an increase in sanitation procedures. Jessica, let's turn to you. Um, I know you were based in the New York area, but you work with national restaurateurs. Is what Alex suggesting consistent with what some of your clients are saying about how they're opening their restaurants, the procedures they're using? Yeah, I think the procedures are in line. I mean, every state has been issuing a set of guidelines and they tend to be fairly consistent from state to state. I think one of the bigger challenges that we're going to face in urban environments that we aren't seeing so much in Texas is lack of patio, which um, is a big concern here in New York City and also in you know any major city in the United States where you're limited to sidewalk seating and you've got to maintain distance for pedestrians to get by and that six-foot social distancing. That's something that we're trying to figure out right now. For restaurants that are in areas where patio is allowed and accessible, I mean, I'm working very hard with all of our clients to try to secure additional patio space in any way, shape, or form they can. Um, recently worked on an executive order with one state to try to make some modifications to liquor licensing regulations and patios heading into the season because I think there's an opportunity for landlords to give restaurants patios in common area spaces, potentially um, grab additional parking areas in front of restaurants and convert those to dining areas by putting decking on top of it. Because fortunately or unfortunately, patio is going to be king and that's going to benefit some geographies more than others, right? So New York City is going to be hit hard. Um, our team out in Phoenix, Scottsdale has said that, you know, they're going to be hit hard because they're going into kind of like reverse summer. Um, you know, it's going to be 115 degrees in Phoenix. So patio doesn't work at this time of year. Um, but I think like the mid-Atlantic states, Texas will get too hot at some point here. But um, that patio thing over the next three months is going to be really, really critical. Well, Alex, Jessica talked about some structural changes to the design of the restaurants, both inside and outside the space. What are you contemplating there? Yeah, so inside of our spaces, we didn't want to pull tables or, or change the design. And the reason is, is we felt it, it was great for the consumer to see the distance and see empty tables. 
So what we did inside of our restaurants is we just put picture frames up with our 10 points of social distancing and what our company is doing and just said the table's reserved for social distancing. And it gives the consumer that, the idea that things are more spread out, which they are. Um, that may be tougher in New York. I think that New York has challenges because the rents are very high. People are in tight spaces there. Um, I think that uh, anybody, any restaurateur that has, like she said, uh, outdoor space, um, bigger square footage inside, able to spread people out, they're definitely at an advantage here, whereas tighter spaces where consumers are more on top of each other um, are going to be more challenging to operate. I don't actually think there's going to be a big difference in the operations. I think some of the finer dining restaurants have a bit of an edge with the social distancing piece simply because they're like steakhouses, for example, are designed to have more space between tables. And I think that that level of service kind of lends itself to people feeling a little more safe, like there's been a little more meticulous care given to the experience. Um, I think the QSRs are going to get hit incredibly hard, especially in the urban CBDs with lines out the door 300 deep getting lunch. I don't think we're going to see that going forward. I think most of that will shift to third-party delivery type of models. And we all know the uh, challenges with third-party delivery and the 15 to 30% take on that that's not really profitable for either the third-party delivery model or um, the restaurants themselves. So I think that that's a hit that we're hearing our QSR operators trying to figure out. Fine casuals, you know, the full service fine casuals will see maybe some uptick in takeout business. I think there's been a consumer shift in that. I mean, I see it myself. I think you've seen a lot of innovation in that category of restaurant where they're creating family meal kits. I think the takeaway will increase there and potentially be compressed on the QSR front because dollar for dollar, there's not a huge difference in the value. Um, and you get a better experience from the full service, fine casual. Well, let's turn to the customers now, if we can, and let's talk about it from a demographic standpoint, because we're not targeting everybody. And I think different generations, millennials, Gen Xers, Gen Zers even, are going to act differently. So let's start with you, Jessica. How do you think these different generations are going to act differently in coming back to the restaurants? It's an interesting question, Spencer. I think across the board, we all feel pretty strongly that millennials as they have demonstrated in the news, aren't afraid of going out right now, right? We've seen them on the beaches. We've seen them at bars. We've seen them throwing their own parties. So I think in areas where we've got heavy millennial populations, we'll see a quicker recovery. I think where we have to be concerned is in markets that have also been driven pretty heavily by the empty nester baby boomer sets, Um you know, the 60 plus, which is obviously a really strong category of spenders that we want to be catering to. I think they're a little bit more hesitant to come out just given the safety concerns. So I think there's a big opportunity for restaurant operators to really cater to them until they feel safe with home delivery or some sort of alternative means of, um, you know, obtain getting that experience that Alex had talked about earlier. Well, when we talk about generations, we're also talking about locations. Do we think suburban restaurants are going to make a comeback versus urban restaurants. And I'll start with you, Alex, and then I'll ask Jessica. Sure. I, you know, it depends on the city, depends on the area. I mean, Baltimore is a city where, uh, you know, we have a giant county crowd, suburban crowd um, that are driving in. The city's only 15 minutes away. It's very easy to get to, easy access off the highway. Um, you know, I think it depends on the city. It depends on the area. Um, you know, I, I think that you'll certainly see stronger demand in areas that are less populated. Jessica, same question to you. Do you agree with that? 
I do agree with that. I think we'll see a suburban uptick. We're already seeing it here in Connecticut with the residential housing market. I think if there were any families with children that were on the edge as to whether or not they wanted to stay in an urban area or move to the suburbs, this is probably a catalyst that will push them in that direction faster. I do disagree, however, on boomers being more suburban in nature. I think over the last five to seven years, we've seen a lot of empty nesters going into cities, buying up beautiful condos or renting really expensive apartments in these urban downtowns with lots of amenities and leaving behind their big houses in the burbs because it just doesn't make sense for them to maintain them. So I think that's something that a lot of restaurants are going to have to contend with is like, how do we deliver in these urban areas to the boomers that probably aren't that comfortable going out and about, right? So Sure. And I think the urban versus suburban divide um, is uh, one that's been around for thousands of years and will be with us for thousand more. So uh, question on the PPP, the Payroll Protection Plan, Alex. The uh, Payroll Protection Plan has helped a lot of small businesses, uh, not just in the restaurant business, but in industrial and in office. But how has the Payroll Protection Plan helped you, and uh, how long do you think it's going to last? Sure. So, I, you know, I think the PPP gives us tremendous runway, um, especially in our business. It allows us to bring back our staff. It allows us to operate eight, for eight weeks with uh, limited payroll and or rent expense. Um, so for the restaurants, it's absolutely crucial for us to get back up on our feet. As you know, we're mandated by the local governments that we can only have so many people through the restaurant. Revenues are limited. So I think for the restaurant business, PPP is vital. And I would agree with that. And I think the good news is we spend a lot of time with the Real Estate Roundtable, with the ICSC. And we believe there's a tr- not only has there been a tremendous amount of government support, we believe that more is coming. And we certainly hope a lot of it goes to the restaurant uh, industry. But let me go to the tough question right now. I don't know if it's tough, but it's just, it's the bottom line. Restaurants have taken it on the chin uh, over the last uh, six, eight weeks and are likely to really face some hard times indefinitely until the social distancing thing is over. So Jessica, turning to you, do you think restaurants, notwithstanding how tough they've had to go for the last six, eight weeks, might actually lead our way out of this because they are such a vital part of the community? I definitely think that. I think they've already shown tremendous leadership over the last six to eight weeks. I mean, who's feeding our front lines at hospitals? Restaurants are. I think if you follow any restaurants on social media, you'll see every day they're delivering meals and taking care of um, as many people as they can. They've also made great strides to ensure that their businesses are still up and running and being a vital part of our food supply chain here when grocery stores are starting to get empty. Like we still have our restaurants that are doing takeout and delivery. I think, frankly, the restaurant business is full of people with a lot of heart that like to care about people. I mean, that's what hospitality is all about. And I think they're definitely going to lead the way. And they really do represent the lifeblood of our communities and where we all go to kind of enjoy ourselves and get away from home cooking, which we're all tired of right now. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I think they're they're a tremendously important part of uh, the fabric of our lives. Well, Jessica, let me get to a tough question because the National Restaurant Association Uh, suggested a couple of weeks ago that a lot of restaurants will never reopen, 14 15%, and those uh, percentages might be higher for mom and pops. What's your point of view on that, Jessica? I think it's incredibly likely. I'm already getting calls from landlords letting me know that spaces may be coming back and to keep keep my ear to the ground for someone that might be looking. I think on the chef-driven front, one of your key problems – 
is that most new brands get started with friends and family money. So I think we won't have as as many new restaurants coming online or new concepts expanding in that one, two, three unit space. But I do think it, it's very tough for those operators to go back to their investors and make a case for more capital at this juncture. I think it's just a very difficult time to convince anyone to pony up money in the restaurant space. So I think models will change and there's still going to be a lot of fallout. I think we will see a lot of space coming back. I think most of it will come back though in Q1 of 2021. I think most brands are going to work through the PPP. They're going to reopen. We'll go through holiday. We'll see how it goes. And then when January hits, which is typically one of the slowest months for restaurants and there isn't excess capital available to sustain, I think we're going to see a huge wave of vacancy, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, as far as mom and pops, I think that if you own your own building or you're, you're, you're working it with your family, I think you're going to make it through. And, I, you know, I, I know a lot of mom and pop operators in Baltimore. Um, some have sat on their properties forever, so they don't have a ton of rent. Um, some pay rent, but they're operated by their wife and their kids. And I think that they're in the, in the best position to weather this. Um, I think like if I'm a mom and pop, what I would be doing is I would, I would decrease my menu size. I would try and decrease my labor. I'd be in there working it myself um, as much as possible. The biggest expense in the restaurant industry is labor. So whatever you can do to reduce labor hours and be in there yourself, operating it yourself, uh, for a mom and pop, I think that's the way to go. What do you think are some of the positive or maybe negative changes from the crisis that are going to happen in the restaurant business? I think there are a lot of positives to come out of it. One is on the tech side. I think that this crisis has actually kind of pushed forward an issue that needed to be resolved for years, but that was a costly change that most restaurants resisted, which was contactless payment. We see it in Europe. It's finally going to be here in the U.S. as a result of this. I think you're going to see a lot more tech in restaurants. What has excited me the most is the innovation that I've seen from restaurant operators, whether they're local or larger restaurant groups. I think she's right in in the fact that innovation is a huge positive. Restaurants are going to come up with different ways to create revenue for themselves. And the other positives are when they do come back in that there's going to be a whole different set of standards for sanitation and cleanliness. Um, Not that we weren't you know, above and beyond before, but now it's like a whole different level. So I think that guests from a positive will feel very safe to dine. And from a negative, I just, you know, the other side is you worry about the energy. You worry about, you know, in that New York bar where you're shoulder to shoulder with somebody, um, where it used to be crammed in before. And now are you hesitant to do that? I think that's the negative. You won't see that energy maybe that you had before. It's going to take some months for that to come back. Well, I liken it, Spencer, to, if you recall, I don't remember what year it was, but when smoking was banned in bars, right? Like, I remember I was a bartender at the time. I'm like, bars will never be the same. This is terrible. How could this happen? And people people got used to it. And now I think if you tried to light up in a bar, most people would freak out. And I just think, to your earlier point in this conversation, Americans are exceptionally resilient people adapt. I I think there is a period of time that is going to be a struggle, but I think I cap it at 12 to 18 months. Well, I would also say the other major shock, certainly in the New York restaurant scene, was getting rid of what was known as the wet lunch. Um, And because you lost the expensive lunch turn, uh, many of the large steak restaurants that I went to as a kid couldn't make it. And so, uh, but they adapted and now the restaurants are doing a much bigger restaurant scene Uh, So adaptation, resiliency, I think, is the the name of the game. 
So on behalf of the Weekly Take, this is Spencer Levy, and it was such a great conversation uh, with you, uh, Alex, and you, Jessica. Thank you for talking about the restaurants, uh, getting to the bottom line. Thanks, Spencer. Thanks, Spencer. For more information, go to CBRE backslash The Weekly Take. Until next time, I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well. Be well.